when I was your age, television was called Fox. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Nope. No, here at the Book Exchange Podcast, we never will surrender, at least when it comes to bringing you the very best in discussion about books and literature. Welcome to the Book Exchange Podcast. My name is Jude Lovell. I'd like to thank Mr. or Sir Winston Churchill there. Um, from a, a recording that um, my co-host found. Um, and by the way, he is the only, just a little trivia, he is the only head of state, as far as I know, he's the only head of state to ever be awarded the Nobel Prize in lit- in literature, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, uh, for his writings about his life and times of war. So greetings to everybody. That gives you a hint to what we're on about today. I'd like to welcome my co-host in right now. John Lovell from Easton, Maryland. John, good morning. Hey, man. Good morning. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 41. Yeah, we got a – we are locked and loaded, John. We have a jammed um, ammo container today um, on our topic of discussion, which is World War II. And um, we're very excited. We have lots of books to talk about. It obviously, could go in many different directions and I think we're going to be a little, little scattershot um, in this episode. That's okay. There's so much ground to cover and so much it could be discussed. But what I want to say at the forefront, though, is that I, I feel like we really have a very good variety of sort of out-of-the-box titles that you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear about World War II. So, as usual, we're hoping that our listeners get, like, some suggestions for stuff to check out. Um, I think I can say that this episode is not going to be sort of right up the middle in terms of most discussions of World War II literature. John, do you think I have that right? Yeah, you, you touched on it, in ter- at least in terms of what we're, what we're trying to do. I mean, I, I joked with you that, you know, you could, you could take all the books and kind of line them up that have been written about World War II since or even during that conflagration, the worldwide conflagration. And, uh, you know, circle the earth about three times. So, you know, yeah, yeah what we're trying to do is, is offer some recommendations from our own personal reading that may not be, you know, the, you know, standard titles that you might expect to hear about. There may be some of those, but I think they're going to be, as we tend to do, we try to try to reach a little bit beyond the typical fare and offer some recommendations that listeners may not know as much about. But then. I think we both have a lot of titles to at least mention that we haven't read that are sort of classics or, you know, definitive accounts or whatever. I mean, this is such a, a broad and complex subject that you could you could approach it from so many different angles. And uh, we're going to try to cover some of those, but we'll never we'll never cover them all. That's for sure. But as, yeah. as, as was stated from the outset, we, we'll never surrender. We're going to keep we're going to keep driving. Absolutely. Yeah. And that quote you found was just magnificent. That's, uh, you know, you could listen to that over and over, you know, just classic stuff. But yeah, I think you have that right. I think we're going to be talking about books on the broad theme of World War II. And then we're going to mention 
many other books that we have read that have something to do with the topic that are notable for one reason or another. And we're even going to talk about some books we have not read that are kind of canonical. So just as World War II spread all over the globe with its terror and its infamy, we're going to kind of be all over the place as well. Um, so uh, I'd just like to say really quickly, I, you know, administratively, just another reminder, please send us your email, bookexchangetwins at gmail.com, exchange with an X. And if you feel inclined to use your phone one day while you're hanging out at the bus stop or the grocery store parking lot or whatever, you want to drop us a voicemail, you could do that as well on the Anchor site, anchor.fm forward slash book dash exchange with an X. Leave us a voicemail and we'll use your input in the show. We appreciate everybody listening. Um, I think I'm just going to segue immediately, John, even without a break, if it's cool with you, into what we're reading right now. Sure. I'm going to go first because mine is related to the topic, so I'm not going to talk about it just yet. Then I'll pass you the football, then we'll break and we'll come back and we'll talk about the Second World War. So if that works for you, here we go. Sounds good to me. All right. Well, I am reading a book I'm going to discuss a little bit later, not much at length. Um, but, you know, one of the sub, 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 sub categories I'm going to bring up later is kind of like um, sort of, I, want, I guess I want to call it discovered World War II literature, which is like books that were written and sort of put away for one reason or another or were discovered after the author's death. That's the case here. The novel I'm reading is called Every Man Dies Alone. And it was written by a gentleman from Germany. I don't even know much about him. There's like a biographical note at the end of the book, but I'm not done with the book. But I know that he was um, a German man, citizen. And he uh, wrote this novel, which is like a 550 page novel. And it's about, it's set in Germany. It's basically about this one couple who decides that, you know, who's living in, Germany during the Nazi regime and they don't like it much. So they decide to go on their own personal quest to disrupt the Nazi regime and the Gestapo in particular. And the way that they do that and the people that are involved makes up the bulk of this novel. But the writer, it was based on a real incident. Somebody gave this man, Hans, Hans Falada was the writer's name. Somebody gave him a file somehow from the Gestapo. He wrote this novel Again, over 550 pages in a flurry of 21 days, which is astonishing. Holy and crap. later he was imprisoned for insanity and he ended up uh, dying in like a Nazi uh, jail cell or um, institution for like the criminally insane, I believe. I know he was institutionalized by the Nazis for insanity. I'm not quite sure if he actually died there, but he died at a very young age and this novel was discovered later. So... I'll bring it up just really briefly later in connection to another book, but it's called Every Man Dies Alone. It's published by Melville House, one small publisher we like. And I, it's very slow moving, but I'm enjoying it a lot. And it's kind of like starting to grow on me exactly what it's on about. Um, it's very interesting, just by way of conclusion, that this is a book about the Nazi regime from living under the Nazi regime and written while it was going on. Because usually there's like some distance required. That's not, that's not the case here. So that's what I'm reading, and over to you. Uh, yeah, that's 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 astonishing. I I had heard about the novel from you, I think, and maybe from elsewhere, but um, I don't think it's that well known, really. 
but first of all, you know, we, we, the last episode we spent, you know, talking to you about your writing process and your writing in general. I mean, can you possibly imagine cranking out a 500 page novel in 22 days? That's, no. that's essentially a superhuman feat. You know, that's yeah. just uh, talk about a fever dream, you know, just being under, being into, in some kind of state and just, you know, cranking that out is just, yeah. Fugue state or something. Yeah, mind boggling. But to do that under those circumstances is, is even crazier. And as you, I think, hinted at, you know, that's this is not the only novel that we'll mention today that was written by a German citizen from Germany while the war was going on. So mm-hmm. uh, there may be another one of those coming up later in the show. Uh, but Okay, so what I'm reading is completely different from what you just mentioned, and you know, a bit of a segue from the from or diversion from the topic here. Nice. Um, but I'm reading what I really I just got to say right out of the gate, and you'll be excited about this because you gave it to me. This is I'm reading an extraordinary book, extraordinary, uh, by a young woman writer by the name of I'll probably mangle her name, but I'm going to go with this. Giblin, um, or Giblin, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It's a strange spelling of her last name. Um, but she, uh, I didn't know anything about her before you gave me. This. And apparently, she writes for a number of prominent magazines. Uh, uh, she's been published in Tin House. She writes. She's written for the New Yorker and the New York Times. Um, but also, uh, apparently, writes a writes a. This is interesting. Writes a sort of an advice column that's about like spirituality and technology for Wired magazine, which I think <laughs> is real, really interesting. But yeah. uh, this is her first book. It's kind of a collection of essays that she's written over the last, I guess, 10 years or so. It's called Interior States. And I got to tell you, I, I'm about, I have about, there's about 12 essays in this book, and I have about three left. And this is pretty unusual for me to, to say this about a collection of essays. There has not been a single essay in this book that I didn't find at least very interesting, if not flat out fascinating. So wow, I'm, that's I'm, great. I'm really impressed with this book. I'm really impressed with her as a writer. I think she's a very astute and sharp critic, but also is very kind of uh, honest because a lot, most of these essays at least touch on the personal. I mean, I, I think this book of essays in particular, you know, really hits some of my sweet spots. So, you know, may not be absolutely for everybody, but uh, she comes from a large family, from a, from a, a, a staunchly evangelical background from the Midwest. So she's writing from the, but she's, uh, as mentioned, as, as she mentions in almost every essay, she's, she's walked away from her faith or she's lost her, the faith that she was brought up in. But she's very sympathetic towards it and you know the general timber of all of these essays what she's writing on there's a lot of humanity and compassion and open-mindedness in them which is uh these are all qualities i respond to a lot you know in a writer a non-fiction writer i know you had wondered when because you hadn't read the book you'd wondered whether you know she writes a lot about spirituality about uh you know, Christianity in America, about, you know, uh, evangelicals. These are all topics I find really interesting. Um, 
but you had wondered, you just weren't sure whether she handles that in, in an open and balanced way or, you know, maybe in a smug way or whatever. But I'm, I'm happy to say, right. I, I, think, I think these essays are really uh, just fair-minded and honest and just very, very sharp. So I've, I've really, I mean, I could, I could go on and on about every one of them, every one of the essays, but I don't want to do that, obviously, for time constraints. But I'll just say a lot of them about are about her, about Christianity in America. And she weaves in, you know, the way that she grew up, which is fascinating. She comes from a large family. They're homeschooled. They would go to a Bible camp every summer. And there would be, you know, mass baptisms in one, one I guess, Lake Michigan or one of the lakes near where she grew up. Um, you know, she had, she never, she never watched MTV, for example, in her entire life. But then the first time she saw it was she was she and her sister were sitting in a hotel room in Russia because her parents went over for some kind of mission trip over there and just basically let them <laughs> sit in the <laughs> hotel. And they just sat around all, all the whole time they were in Russia. You know, <laughs> so they, so they didn't get to see a lot of Russia, but they did see MTV. So the first time she sees MTV, ironically, she's in a Russian hotel room, which is just bizarre. Yeah. But, um, but so there's a lot of, you know, there, there's a whole fascinating essay about the uh, creation, creationism museum, which I don't know if you've read much about. It's in Northern Kentucky. There's a whole museum that's a, that's dedicated to the idea that, you know, the world was created in seven days and it's, it's like a theme park. <laughs> it's just, I find this kind of thing, this intersection of like culture, technology and, and Christianity in America just, it's like catnip for me, you know? So, uh, but there's also, just to give you an example of, of, I think you would love this book. There's a short, but I thought really smart essay about reading Updike now, because he's has this, you know, in our culture now, certainly, you know, he would have been canceled a long time ago, you know, because there's yeah. a lot of what, you know, what would be considered today misogyny and kind of chauvinism in his books, but his books are, you know, they contain a lot of sex in them and, you know, uh, controversial, you know, positions about women. And, but it's also a lot about, you know, spiritual themes as well. But I, she wrote a very interesting essay about how she resisted up reading Updike for a long time, but then finally read it. And, and it's just a very balanced account of what's bad and what's good in Updike that, you know, it got me interested in reading some of Updike's novels in a way that I never would have thought would be possible. This is just, I, I think it's an extraordinary collection. I think she's an extremely sharp and gifted writer. And uh, you were mentioning to me, she has a new book out that just came out this year. And I, I'm definitely going to be keeping my eyes open for that. So uh, it was a great pick on your part. And again, the, the, the book is called Interior States. And I think it's really worth seeking out. It's just fascinating. Well, I'm delighted to hear that that's working out for you because I saw it and was really interested in it for you and for me. And, um, you know, obviously we've said many times on the show, we also have Midwestern stock or Midwestern blood. And, uh, you know, it seems to have a lot to do with that region of the country as well. But, you know, yeah, I just wasn't, I wasn't totally sure if it was going to be kind of like the right tone or whatever, but uh, the, I can put those fears to rest. You know, because I can tell by hearing your voice how much you're into the book, which is great. And uh, yeah, this other book she came out, which I think is called God, Human, Animal, Machine. 
you can just tell by the title there that that's going to continue to feed your appetite. So that that's great. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I mean, there's no question I'll read that book given the subject matter and given how much I, you know, admire her writing from, from this book. So yeah, that's a, that's a big, that was, this is a big event for my reading year. So thanks a lot for that, but we should probably move on. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That's a winner. Score one for, for old Jude. Um, all right, let's take a break, John. Uh, great uh, choices there for what we're reading. Uh, we'll come back and we'll, I'll start things off and then I'll set you up. Okay. Let's do it. Okay, we're back. So I'd like to start things off by telling a little bit of a story to our listeners. It's going to be very short. Um, John brought this up in the teaser the last time. So as we've said many times on the show, our, our father uh, has passed away now. He died seven years ago. But um, he used to tell us this story about the, the um, United States entry into World War II from his perspective because he was a young boy age 11 at the time. And we're we just so happens, John, that we're coming up today's December 4th. And in three days, we're going to hit the 80th anniversary of, um, you know, one of the great, uh, well, not great in the great sense, but one of the biggest historical pivots of the war, which was the Pearl Harbor invasion, right? Mm, yeah. Which took place on December 7th, 1941, which is one of the reasons why episode 41 is titled what it is, etc., And it gave us our theme. So that 80th anniversary is coming up soon. And uh, the story that my dad and your dad told us that you mentioned the last time is he had this vivid memory of waking up in the morning. My, our dad was from Indiana and he lived in kind of a big old style house in a, a sort of a quiet and very small Indiana town um, called Fowler which is where he did most of his growing up. Um, I, he was either told or he went on his own to retrieve the newspaper from the front porch of this house. I've seen the house. And um, the paper was lying on the front porch from the delivery boy. And as John mentioned last time, there were th four characters that were splayed across the entire front of the paper, including below the fold, which said war signaling the attack you know reporting on the attack of pearl harbor and i think uh also on might have been a day or two later because it was also about president roosevelt you know speaking before congress and declaring war on japan and the united states entering world war ii so um i only bring that up because that's a vivid memory for both of us the story dad telling that story is a vivid memory and he also added as a vivid memory so it's a little piece of americana that our father passed to us and um, just sort of marking, I guess, if you will, sort of the impact of the United States entering into World War II, which gave us the impetus for episode 41 here. So <laughs> it has nothing to do with the, the books itself, but it's just kind of a memory you and I share of our dad talking about that. And I know you remember that, too. Did you want to make any comment on that or should I press on? 
No, you can press on, but yeah, that's a that's certainly I, I do remember him talking about that uh, at the table at one point. It was just fascinating to think about. Yeah, and it's just interesting to think of you know one's parent, you know, just kind of being a kid, like a like a young kid trying to figure out something on the vast scale of World War II. But there's no like direct segue into books, so but we do have a lot of ground to cover, so. I would just say by way of starting this off, so I'm going to pass the ball to you to start things off for us, John, if you don't mind. And uh, I, like we've been saying, I think we have read a lot of books related to the subject, although one of the things I discovered was that I certainly haven't read a lot of history books, straight up history books related to World War II, as I might have thought. And, um, and most of my titles are not, you know, history. I, I have nonfiction, but not quite, you know, big historical studies of the war, but let's kick it to you. And how about you cover whatever your first selection is going to be? Yeah, I would just say uh, it's the same thing here. I was surprised at how, how many of the books that came to mind that I wanted to discuss are fiction. Um, given that this is such a huge worldwide event. And there are of course, you know, thousands and thousands of nonfiction books written about world war II. I also realized I really haven't read, um, with the exception of maybe one book, I really haven't read kind of a, an overall history. It's almost too big to get your arms around. I know that they're out there, but you know, most of the histories you find are about one particular theater or one particular event or battle, or, or in one case, you know, one particular uh, company of soldiers. You know, it just kind of, or they might be about what happened at Pearl Harbor or. Iwo Jima, you know, it's just kind of, it's too much to break off and try to capture all at once. But the first book, I, I'm not sure why, but the first book that popped into my head immediately when we talked about doing this show is actually a bit of a, you could say it's a bit of a science fiction book in a way. Um, but it, it just popped into my head immediately because it's, it's one of the most, I would say, if not the most powerful anti-war novel that I've ever read. But it's so weird and unusual. And that would be Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm going to guess you probably have read this once. Have you? Yes, yes. Uh, probably 15, 16 years ago, yeah. Yeah, so I read this a long time ago, too. We're not going to go plot, point by point into the plots of any of these books. We just don't have the time. But Slaughterhouse-Five... What I remember about it is this. It, it has to be one of the most remarkable expressions of post-war trauma that anyone has ever produced. Oh, I mean, so well think, said, John. That's so well said. Go on. Yeah, well, thank, I, I, think, I think that's really... If you know the story, Vonnegut's story, you know that he was uh, a soldier uh, in Germany at the time of the firebombing of the city of Dresden which was an absolutely cataclysmic event for the people who were there on either side. It was just a total destruction of the city, essentially by fire from above. Um, mm -hmm. And Vonnegut was there. I don't, in the, in the, the, the novel Slaughterhouse Five, there's a character famously named Billy Pilgrim who is present there. And he's there as a, as a, as a captured prisoner. He's working in a, in a work camp when this bombing takes place. I don't know if that's the case for Vonnegut. I don't think so. I think he just participated in whatever was going on there in the destruction. 
and then the slaughter. But it completely uh, traumatized Vonnegut. And um, what I didn't know about this book, I did a little reading just a little bit before the show. And I guess he had so much trouble, you know, processing it that he wrote this book, I think, in the in the 60s. And it took him about 15, 20 years to even it's the first time he really said anything about it. But and this is how he kind of dealt with it, with this novel, which is a very strange. It has a whole science fiction element to it, it involves this character. The, the first sentence is famous. First, it says, uh, I don't remember exactly, but Bill, something to the effect of Billy Pilgrim has become unstuck in time. And he jumps back and forth in time. And he's mm -hmm. also been captured by an alien race that has put him in a, a zoo of like interplanetary animals, you know, and, and like, some of that is very Vonnegut, but some of the, uh, some of the passages include, you know, his captivity on this, it's called something like, uh, what's it called? It's called, uh, uh, Tralfamador or something, some bizarre planet <laughs> but where he's, he's captured, but you know, it bounces back and forth between the different points of his life on Earth after the war to uh, Billy Pilgrim's experience during the war and also his experience in captivity on this planet. You know, <laughs> it covers a lot of time. But really, it, it's just it's it, it, it contains a whole description of what happened in Dresden. And it's absolutely a book and a weird book. It's also a devastating book. And it's it's it contains a lot of just uh, dark cynicism about you know man's capacity, f cruelty, and, and also uh, you know uh, criticism and cynicism about Christianity and you know uh, a lot of you know uh, quote unquote answers that man has attempted to try to explain human cruelty. But really, more than anything else, it's just it's an ingenious and highly original kind of, you know, uh, way of experiencing, uh, you know, trauma after experiencing this, in, this unbelievable, you know, cataclysm during World War Two. And I was just really what I remember, I was blown away by the creativity of it, just the audacity of the science fiction aspects of the book. But what comes through is this is that the trauma and the deep sadness that really do come through in the book. And it ends up being just a very, very powerful anti-war novel. So it combines a lot of elements together that you wouldn't necessarily expect. But man, if you read this book once, you, you don't forget it. And so that was that's why it popped into my head right away. That would be my first high recommendation would be Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, that's a great selection, John. And it's that uh, you're right. That book is not forgettable. Like once you once you read it, it's really weird. Um, but and it's you know got elements that may not to be be to everybody's taste. Um, and it also, of course, gave gave the um, you know gave us a famous expression that was repeated throughout the book. You remember what that was? Oh boy, I should, but I, I don't. It's going goes. And so it goes, right? You know, there's this uh, um, sentence or phrase that keeps coming up in the novel, just, you know, basically just having, you know, giving the proverbial shrug in the face of unexplainable things, you know? And so yeah. it goes. So that's a famous aspect of the book as well. Um, like you, I read it years ago, but you, you really can't forget it. And, it. and it's exactly like you said, it's just this expression of post-war trauma 
which, you know, this is live on air, but that would be a really interesting theme for an episode, not just war books, but sort of the best, our favorite books, you know, expressing post-war trauma in interesting ways, because there's other books I can think of. But anyway, um, yeah, it, you know, it's it's what what you get out of it just to, and we'll move on. But what you get out of it is not only just its unforgettable nature, but you just have this really striking, very powerful um, sense of how traumatizing and damaging this was to just one man and just like imprinted his entire existence, you know, and that really comes through when you read this book, he found a way to just kind of um, get whatever it sort of cost him onto the page in a way. So it's like a really, you know, canonical anti-war reading for sure. It is. And, 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 and this just in, you know, I, I had a page open that I, I forgot to mention this, but, you know, to answer my own question, um, Vonnegut was captured by the Germans during the Battle of the Bulge and he was transported to Dresden and he and his fellow prisoners of war survived the bombing while being held in a deep cellar of Schlafffunf, <laughs> uh, which is translated as Waterhouse Five. So hence the title. Oh yeah, man! Uh, good job by our staff there to uh, slip you that piece of paper or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, good job, intern. <laughs> um, all right, so well, let's move on, John. But that's a great first pick. And for me, a, a lot of my selections are sort of either couplets or groupings this time around, just because of the nature of the topic. And the first one for me um, is. I'll say, you know, some of the work of the writer Jim Shepard. Now, our loyal listeners will remember Jim Shepard was the subject of one of our uh, renowned, quote unquote, uh, dealer's choice episodes where we pick a writer that we're really both fascinated with and really deep, do a deep dive into their work. We did that with Jim Shepard. Usually I'm good remembering the, the actual specific episode title, but I can't remember it now. You don't remember the episode, do you? I don't, not off the top yeah. of my head. That's okay. Um, look for our, you know, occasional series, uh, the, the dealer's choice, if you're interested in that. But um, so Jim Shepard is somebody that we both really admire. He's both a novelist and a short story writer. And uh, we talked at great length in that episode about his incredible short stories, which are often um, historical in nature. So I would just like to point readers to three, actually three works by Jim Shepard. Two of them are novels. Um, and one of them is a short story. So, and I'm not, like you said, I'm not going to get deep into any of them, but um, the most recent story collection by Jim Shepard is an amazing book called The World to Come, which I think you brought up at one point and we talked about um, a lot of the stories there on that, on that one episode. But one of the stories we didn't mention, it relates to World War II. It's called Telemachus, um, which I think is a... Uh, uh, classical greek reference i'm pretty sure but you would know better than me um but in this case it's the name of a see shepherd is really interesting as a historical writer because he 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 writes historical fiction but he frequently writes historical short stories which is a whole other animal and i've tried to do that myself and it's not easy um so that's not easy work and then he writes on many many topics across many many eras but one of the stories he wrote called Telemachus in that book called The World to Come is set not in an American submarine, but a British submarine. 
And not only is it a British submarine and it's called Telemachus, but it's the submarine is one of the older ones. So it's like not very souped up. It's pretty, it's very, very small and claustrophobic and it's pretty, it's pretty tight. And so he weaves a story of submarine combat, basically inside an aging British submarine with a British crew. And it's interwoven with the story of one character on the submarine whose name, who has a nickname of Monk, who has these unrequited feelings for a female cousin of his. And he's kind of a loner and sort of the kind of guy who can't face up to things in life. And so the story is about him on this vessel in the South Pacific. So it's a combat story as well as a personal story. And there's a little author's note at the end of it where Shepard says that he had sort of dreamed up a character who was always running away from things that confronted him. And so he decided the most interesting situation to put him in would be to put him, stick him on a submarine where you literally can't run away from anything. <laughs> so um, that's a fascinating story. I just want to point that out to people because I'm such a big fan of Jim Shepard's short fiction. And then I'll, I'll hit the other two, John. I'll let you have the chance to comment. Um, the other two are novels. There's a short novel he wrote fairly recently. It's not his most recent novel, but the sort of one before. It's called The Book of Aaron, A-R-O-N. Um, generally speaking, I'm not as big of a fan of, it's like you with T.C. Boyle, not as big of a fan of his novels as I am of his short stories. I can say that pretty confidently. But And I did read The Book of Aaron. I don't remember a lot of the details, but it fits really well with the World War II topic. And it's kind of a, a really sad and gripping story. One thing that Jim Shepard tends to do really well is write about glum kids for one reason or another. But um, in the book of Aaron, it's told from a child's point of view. Aaron, the titular child, is a, uh, is a kid growing up in, um, oh gosh, I'm trying to remember, uh, Warsaw, Poland. Um, when the Nazis have invaded and he's uh, it takes place in the, the ghettos of Poland and he gets uh, of course captured. Um, and he is kind of like a scrounger who runs around on the streets looking for food and stuff they can use to resist and whatnot. And in this story, he gets taken up by a doctor who was actually historically a real figure who was famous for um, being a, a leading figure in the Warsaw resistance and taking care of, young children specifically. So this fictional boy, Aaron, teams up with this doctor and they basically resist the Nazis. And uh, not to spoil it too much, but they both end up um, in Auschwitz. So it doesn't end particularly well, but it's a gripping and really sad and memorable novel called The Book of Aaron. And then lastly, one of Jim Shepard's earliest novels is called Paper Doll. And it's also a short novel, and it's a very exciting and gripping story of American fighter pilots and their experience of World War II. And what I really liked about this book was it's kind of, you know, sleek and short, and it's really strong on the kind of camaraderie and all the joking and ribbing and the day-to-day -day lives of these pilots. But then it ends with a whole sequence of riveting air combat, bloody you don't expect it to be bloody, but people get shot in the cockpits. And there's this big uh, war over the European skies that closes the book. Very memorable. So Jim Shepard is somebody who writes really well and memorably fiction about the Second World War. So 
over to you. Yeah, that's great stuff, especially at the end there. That's a really even, you know, Jim Shepard, not that well known as we talked about in, in our episode, at least relatively speaking. He's certainly known among writers. And as we said, up and down in that episode, you can go back and listen to it. Just to our minds, one of the one of the greatest living American writers and particularly talented in 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 drawing out these really uh, humane and you know fascinating sort of human psychodramas uh, out of different periods of history um, in really interesting ways. Um, but Paper Doll is a even if you know even even those who do know Jim Shepard, that's a really deep cut in his, in his uh, repertoire there. Uh, but um, I've never read it myself, but it sounded fascinating when you were reading it. And that's a, certainly a great pick for this list and, and gives us uh, some representation of, you know, from the sky of some of the dog fighting and the aerial battles that went on during World War II. I will right, say, uh, point. Telemachus, by the way, unless I'm wrong, I may have to issue a correction in our next episode, if I'm wrong about this, and that'll be embarrassing, but what the hell, you know, we're live without a net here, but <laughs> I, I believe Telemachus is one of the sons of Ulysses when Ulysses returns home after his long journey home. And uh, Telemachus is, is his son, I believe. And if I, I could be <laughs> totally wrong about that, but anyway, just to answer that question. And um, Jim Shepard just, an incredible writer. You really can't go wrong. And, and you know, that, that short story in particular, the world to come is an amazing book. All of his last three story collections in particular are just extraordinary. Um, you think that's bad. Uh, like you'd understand anyway, and also the world to come. Those are just, they're all just incredible books. Can't go okay. wrong with any of those. Yeah. So read those. So, yeah. Yeah, so I have a grouping too. I'll try to go through these quickly, you know, just in the, for the same reason. You know, we're, there's just so many books to bring up um, that we're trying to get, you know, cover as much as we can here. But I would, the general, you know, category here for us would be, these are sort of nostalgia picks, at least for you and I, because they go back to writers that we, we started reading really early on when we were just getting into, you know, really reading books as, as you know, late teenagers. So the first, the first guy I got to bring up, a little bit like Shepard, you know, he's written a number of, you know, acclaimed books. In his case, all novels. I believe they're all novels. Uh, he might have one nonfiction book in there somewhere. Um, but the writer's name, he's come up before on the show, Leon Uris, who has passed away. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is, uh, along with Vonnegut, he too, uh, you know, the veteran of World War II. Um, and, you know, there's two books of his that I, he's written a number of extraordinary, just gripping and, and page turning historical novels. Um, but I want to bring up two of them because they, you know, connect directly to this topic. The first is his debut novel, which is called Battle Cry. Probably one of the best, you know, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say one of the best novels ever written about being a United States Marine, you know, especially in combat. And mm -hmm. It's just, it's, it's one of the, it's very clearly, but sort of, you know, loosely autobiographical, basically tells his own, you know, story coming up. And it, and it tells the story of a lot of, it's really interesting because this novel, you know, it's a novel of Marines during World War II, but most of the novel from what I remember, and it's been decades since I read it, but most of it has to do with the process of becoming a Marine and the training 
and kind of the camaraderie between the soldiers that they develop, you know, from the beginning in boot camp together and then being shifted around to different bases as, you know, it became clear they were going to be deployed. I remember they go to Camp Pendleton on the West Coast and they're awaiting, you know, deployment. And then they, I don't, I don't remember exactly the order, but they get deployed. They get sent all the way to Australia and they spend time in Australia training. And they just kind of, most of the novel has to do with sort of their, you know, who these young guys are. They're, they're from, you know, whistle stop towns and farm towns and small towns in, in America. And they kind of come together and you would be able to relate to this a bit, Jude, just, to, you know, being in a, a United States soldier, not a Marine, but, but a member of the U S army just bring, it just brings a whole mess of people together and kind of throws them together. And you have to kind of learn how to work together. And Battle Cry is just a really vivid and evocative look at that, that whole process. And then, of course, it's all culminating, you know, building towards when they actually are deployed and they're deployed to the Pacific. I don't remember where, you know, there's a climactic kind of invasion that they take part in one of the islands of the Pacific. I don't remember which one. And it's very bloody. You know, a lot of these young guys who have become fast friends and sort of, you know, uh, grew up together in this, in this, you know, uh, military outfit, a lot of them don't make it. And so you really feel by the end of this novel, you really feel how devastating that must be to be, you know, not just the experience of combat, but to, to watch your buddies die, you know, in, in some cases, literally on the beaches, you know, as yeah. they're invading. So it's a very kind of, I don't know, it's a moving novel. It's a very sort of, I don't want to say innocent, but it's, you know, it's just, it kind of just introduces you to these sort of young, wide-eyed, you know, uh, recruits who end up, you know, being literally thrown into the cauldron and many of them pay the ultimate price. So I really, I really admire that book. I have great memories of it. So that's Battle Cry. He also wrote a, a gripping novel that we've talked about before on the show at least once called Mila 18 which is basically a dramatic dramatization dramatization of of the war the uprising in the Warsaw ghetto which you just mentioned uh, you know Jewish citizens you know they were invaded by the Nazis and they were put into this one confined this one area of the city basically told just to like stay put we're in charge now and and they they you know a whole group of them organized the rebellion and they fought literally with their hands you know, just making up, making bombs and with sticks and bats, whatever they could find to resist, you know, the German occupation. And it's a very moving story of how this all came together. And, you know, uh, they they lasted for quite a while and uh, were quite a nuisance to the Germans there for a long time. Um, so that's a really a gripping novel too, Mila 18. Then my final pick, you know, I just finished reading this. I was able to cram it in. You know, this is a thriller. We talked in our in our episode. Uh, I don't remember what number it was, but the episode where you know uh, it was our birthday, we kind of looked back at fifty years of reading. We talked about how we sort of started out reading kind of paperback thrillers, and and one you know Tom Clancy, and uh, you talked about Stephen Coons and writers like that. During that period when we were when we were young guys, I remember we both some I think it might have been you first, but you know got a hand got our hands on the classic World War II thriller called The Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins. <laughs> and yeah. Jack Higgins is one of the masters of sort of the military and or spy thriller. 
you know, I would say in the like seventies, eighties and nineties. Um, and he had, he had quite a life himself. He had a really interesting life, but this was a classic, you know, tale about uh, an attempt by a, a German, you know, a group of German commandos that decide they're going to try to uh, invade England, you know, on the down low without anybody knowing and kidnap Winston Churchill. And um, I don't know if it was based on, you know, some a plan that somebody had in real life, but the novel is just really, it's just, it's just a really fun and gripping read about this attempt to kidnap Churchill on native soil in, in Great Britain when he decides to take a weekend in the country and uh, you know, what happens at, with this attempt to, you know, pull him out of there and kidnap him. And I got to say, even though the book is old and, and it'd been decades since I read it, it, it held up a lot for me. It's just a really fun, gripping thriller. And Higgins is enough of a, of a writer and a, and a researcher to make it really seem plausible. I was really surprised at, you know, how well this novel came off, even though it had been like three decades since the last time I read it. I think it really works. You know, the pages whipped by, it was made into a film in the 70s with uh, Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland. And it's just a gripping thriller. And it, it really it, it really held up for me. I, I thought it was a really fun and, and kind of uh, gripping read. So I would really recommend that one, The Eagle Has Landed by Jack Higgins. Yeah, <laughs> all three of those are great books. Um, I would say that The Eagle Has Landed is kind of the quintessential World War II thriller. Um, yeah, if I you agree. if you're interested in World War II, but you don't like reading the, the scholarly stuff or the, you know, the really heavy stuff, the, the Eagle Eyes Landed by Jack Higgins is, is your jam. That's yeah. one of the very few books. I read that a couple times when I read it when I was like 18 or 19. Like you said, we were just getting back into reading. And I, I, I that's one of the very few books in my life that I read, like within 24 hours. Like I just couldn't put the book down. Yeah. You know, and then and then Leon Urs, I was going to mention Mila 18 myself. I'm glad you did because I have so many other things. Um, but those two books are, again, if you like thrillers, both Mila 18 and uh, Battle Cry. And then he actually his last novel came back around to World War Two is a book called O'Hara's Choice. Never read it, though. Hmm. Um, but uh, Leon Urs, uh those two books are absolutely gripping. And I would call them kind of essential, too. At least Battle Cry, like if you want to get a sense of what it was like to be a young, you know, dewy-eyed kid that's sent off to fight in World War II, Battle Cry is, you know, as good a book as any that you could find, you know. Yeah, that's your book. Yeah, and uh, I mean, and the other thing is Leon Eros is Jewish, and he was famous. He's very proud Jewish writer, and he was famous for writing novels about fighting Jews, you know, Jews that fought back. So many of his books have that, um, and I'm not knocking it in any way, like Jewish fighting spirit. So Mila 18, and then he's most, his most famous book is called Exodus, which is about the birth of the Jewish nation. Um, and he has many other books that are about, um, you know, Jews fighting for their right to exist. Um, the Hajj, which he wrote famously from the point of view of the Arab culture, but it also has a significant portion of the books to, devoted to the military aggressiveness of the Jewish people, you know, so that's another note on Leon Harris, but um, battle cry and Mila 18, you can't go wrong. Those are gripping, gripping books. So um, 
I'm going to do my next couple. Of, then we'll take a quick technical break, John, and then I'll throw it back over to you. Yep. This one I can do fairly quickly also. So I decided to go in a different direction. This kind of surprised me with this next couplet. It's two books. Um, but, you know, they're both related to World War II. And, they're, and in this case, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, spirituality and during a time of war. And specifically, you know, John, you and I are both Catholics, as we've said many times. And there are two books that I read that sort of take place during World War II. They're both nonfiction and they stand out to me a lot. So I want to talk about them briefly. And they're both sort of memoirs written by priests during the Second World War. Um, the main distinction is one of the priests survived and one of the priests did not. So there's a book that's called Priest Block 25487. Um I'm not exactly sure when it was published. Um, there's what I read was a reissue. It was written by a priest by the name of Jean Bernard, a French priest who was basically captured by the Nazis and imprisoned. And this is a memoir of his endurance in a Nazi prison camp. I wish I could remember which one, but I, I can't remember that right now, but it's a story of how he survived and maintained his identity as a Roman Catholic priest um, under persecution by the Nazis and in this um, Nazi prison camp that he was in um, and managed to survive in for long enough to um, escape from when it was liberated. Um, and so he went on and lived sort of the rest of his life. But this is kind of a slim and really striking uh, memoir of his time in the prison and what they did to survive and how he maintained a grip on his faith. Um, and I can leave it there. And the other book is one that really, I got it from you. You know, the, you know where I'm going with this. It's yep. a book that has had a lot of value for me. There's very few books I have that I return to again and again. There's two that stand out for me and I've got them both from you. One of them is uh, a book by GK Chesterton, one of your most esteemed writers in your life, John. And it's it's a book about Charles Dickens, and it's uh, a collect a really big collection of all his writings on Charles Dickens, which basically unpacks every single novel and then some. So, as I've said many times, I read Charles Dickens every year. I'm coming up on it this year, and I frequently go back to G.K. Chesterton. The other book that I received from you that I've gone back to almost every year since you gave it to me, which was in two, 2014. It was only a couple months after our father passed away. And it's a book called Advent of the Heart. And it was written by a priest called Father Alfred Delp. And I don't know much more about Alfred Delp. The, this is a book that was, again, written during the, his persecution during the Second World War. He was a parish priest in Munich, kind of a priest like any other priest, so far as I know. And he was captured uh, by the Nazis and thrown into, um, I want to say Dachau, the, the, the uh, concentration camp. I'm not totally sure about that. And the book collects sermons that he gave before he was imprisoned and some writings he wrote before he was imprisoned, but during the time of the Nazi persecution, you know, or the Nazi um, regime. And then he, after he was captured and imprisoned, he wrote a series of meditations specifically about Advent 
um, preparing for the Christmas holiday that are moving and um, impressive and evidence of a man who has great faith, but whose faith is being shaken on a daily basis in the most extreme ways imaginable. And they reflect his um, grace under this incredible pressure and his kind of desperation to hang on to his priestly vocation. And I was just reading from that because we're now into Advent, just on a personal note. Um, uh, there have been some difficult things going on in my family. There have been difficult things going on in your family um, heading into Advent without elaboration. And I can tell you, John, and I can say to our listeners that these reflections, the first year that I read them, they're not easy reading. They're brief, but they're not easy. But kind of the older I get and the, the, the process of returning to them every year, they grow in sort of, I don't know if you can say they grow in wisdom, but they have greater impact on me when I return to them. Last year, I was having kind of a spiritual crisis and I didn't read them at all. This year, I pulled it out and I'm reading them again and they have great relevance to things that are going on in my life and yours. So I just want to say for those who are Christian, maybe Catholic listeners or anybody interested in sort of, you know, what maybe some religious folks went through during the time of the Nazis and the World War, the Second World War, Advent of the Heart, published by Ignatius Press by Father Alfred Delp, is really a moving book and a fascinating one. So thanks for that, John. Yeah, I'm so glad you were able to work that in there. I'm glad, like you said before, when I was talking about interior states, you know, that a couple of books that I gave to you, you know, made their mark or, you know, or had an impact on you. But I'm really glad you worked in that advent of the heart. That's that's a really unusual and very profound, you know, spiritual book. And also, you know, it just has, has to be said, I realize not everyone listening is Christian or Catholic, but we are in the entering into the, the at what was traditionally called the Advent season, which is building up to Christmas. And anyone who may be looking for maybe is feeling a little bit dry or under pressure that we often feel at this time of year. Uh, you could do a lot worse uh, than that collection in terms of finding, you know, um, challenging, but uh, provocative and, and profound and wise sort of spiritual reading specifically about the Advent season. That's just really a great book. So I'm glad we were able to work that in there. We try to, as we always say, a some, little something for everybody here um, on the book exchange. So why don't we um, go ahead and take that break? And then do you want me to just come back and uh, jump right into my next pick? Well, I'm leading this show, so I'll decide when we take it. No, I'm just, <laughs> just, <laughs> just kidding. Over, yeah. Overstep my bounds there, folks. <laughs> for those of you who are looking for twinly conflicts, uh, when we break, I'm going to chew John out. No, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah, no, it's the right time for a break. Let's take a quick one. Let's do a little music. We'll come back and then we'll uh, hear about your next uh, selection for World War II. All right.
John? Yes, sir. Take it away. You're up. Okay. Well, I wanted to, I forgot to do this before. I also want to mention, you mentioned our email address before. Um, we had talked about at, at least one episode ago, if not two, about doing this show on World War II uh, literature. And so we got an email from a listener who wanted to recommend uh, a title. And I'm glad that this person did because it takes us, you know, we have so much to cover. We're really not you know, we talked about what we're going to be covering and you and I didn't have anything really that sort of addressed, you know, the Russian side of things, basically <laughs> uh, the Russian front or Russia's involvement in World War II, which is obviously very significant. I mean, it yeah. may come up with some of the titles that I that I talk about a little bit later, you know, that I haven't read. Uh, but this listener mentions a book that's called Symphony for the City of the Dead. And according to their email and the book is that that book, Symphony for the City of the Dead. Uh, it's about Dmitry Shostakovich, who was a uh, Russian composer. And this book is actually marketed as a young adult novel. <laughs> but, but this listener was telling us that um, it's really, uh, they're sort of confused why, it's be, why it was marketed that way, because it's really kind of a sophisticated book and has a lot of sort of dark material in it. So that's <laughs> a debate for somebody else, I guess. But yeah. the way they just I wanted to mention it because it sounded like a really interesting book. Neither Jude or I have read it, but um, it sounds like it's one worth mentioning in case anybody wants to check it out. This person describes it as a rather gripping account of the experience of Leningraders as they suffered under the first communist, first the communist terror, and then as they were under siege by the Nazis. But it's also a succinct and readable his, political history of Russia as it overthrows its czar, becomes communist, and then witnesses the deliberate extermination of millions of its own people. And so, but then it also, you know, has a lot to do with this composer and the music that he writes uh, and the impact that it has, not just on the Russian people uh, when they hear it, but also on the Germans, you know, uh, you know, occupying and invading. So it's, it just sounds like a really interesting kind of different account from a different sort of corner of World War II. That is uh, a whole area that I don't know much about, and I just wanted to mention it. Sounds like a really interesting book, and I uh, hope people will check it out if they're interested. So that's Symphony for the City of the Dead by, I didn't even, I forgot to mention, Ma Matthew Tobin Anderson is the writer. So wow. thank you to that listener for submitting that selection. Sounds fascinating. Again, we love getting the ideas and submissions from listeners. Uh, either just as readers, but also, you know, to edify everybody who might be listening to the show. So thank you. Um, and the other book that I want to mention here, my, my next book I want to mention, Jude, you know, we already brought up The Old Man at least once on this episode, but I have to give him credit for this one. Uh, and that is the book simply called Hiroshima by John Hersey. Oh. Um, and, you know, we have another memory of that. I've told, I've shared this with some people that have kind of either blown away or, or surprised that our dad would have done this. And I, I think you remember this, that he, I, I think, so Hiroshima, the book was, was I believe it was uh, based upon some nonfiction pieces that Hersey wrote, I believe for the New Yorker, I might be wrong, might be the Atlantic or one of these magazines where, and they're basically, you know, firsthand accounts from Japan of, of the immediate impact of the atomic bomb on the city of Hiroshima. And 
that's what the book is about. It kind of, uh, you know, explores, it's like a bit of an oral history, it kind of tells the stories of Japanese people on the ground who experienced not just this horrific, you know, cataclysm there, but then the aftermath and uh, how they were able to cope with it or not able to cope with it. So Hiroshima is probably one of the definitive accounts of, of that particular, you know, tragic event and the atomic bomb landing on that city and how devastating it was. And, but I just remember, I remember our dad reading passages from it aloud at the the dinner table, just kind of, I don't know why, (laughs) just to kind of make make an impact on us, you know, or just sort of educate us about the the brutality of war. I, I, I don't know, but I do remember him reading. And some of these accounts are pretty graphic, you know, of, of how, you know, the victims and what happened when the bomb was dropped and how people were like sort of stopped in, in mid-walk down the street and just one side of the body is just completely blown away while the, the body is still standing there and just things like that. I don't know. Do you remember that? Uh, only in the vaguest of ways. You know, I remember him reading to us at the dinner table, but I, I just have a really vague memory of him reading some of those accounts. Yeah, I just I I don't remember it, you know, word for word, but I do remember him doing it, and uh, it's just fascinating that he decided to do it, just in general. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it made a real impact on me, and uh, I later went back and read the read the whole book, and it's it's really, I mean, it's a very striking and devastating account, and and it's it just really, you know, described exactly. We we all learn in history class when we're about ten or eleven years old that, you know, Truman made the decision to drop the atomic bomb on Ch- on uh, Japan, but the human impact of that and, and you know, the immediate aftermath is, you know, to read descriptions of that is, is, it, is, is chilling. So, uh, and it's just a really interesting kind of like almost um, forensic account, you know, of what happened immediately after the dropping of that bomb and, and the impact it had on on those people. And it's really, uh, so I wanted to at least have one choice that, you know, sort of looks at things from the side of Japan and uh, the devastating conclusion to the war from their point of view. So Hiroshima is a famous book and it can be easily found if anybody's interested in reading it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never read it sort of embarrassingly. I might have a copy of, I actually can't remember. I know I have, um a copy of one of his other books um john is it hersey or hershey hersey i think it's hersey yeah um but anyway i do have vague memories of dad reading it to us and and it strikes me that there might be a you know some books there's not much similarity you know you talked about slaughterhouse five and that's a novel and this is obviously a very different nonfiction kind of forensic account like you said but feels like some books from the war experience which makes a lot of sense you know, a lot of their impetus impetus is like deterrence, you know, and this is one of those books that seems like, you know, was part, at least part of what must have motivated him to write it was to just sort of get it down and make sure that it never happened again (laughs) kind of thing, you know. Yeah. It actually draws a memory out of me. I I had no plan of this at all, and I'm not going to talk about it, but I remember... Similarly, I remember reading for research in high school um, a book by this 
general named Leslie Groves. I think that was his name. Um, I might have the name wrong, but it was the general that was in charge of the Manhattan Project. And uh, he, he wrote an account of the Manhattan Project that was called Now It Can Be Told. You know, now I'm not recommending the book because I don't remember it at all. But, you know, that's another, it feels like another example of somebody who, you know, was processing this event and wanted to get things down so that, you know, this would never occur again, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that was a spontaneous selection there for my list. Uh, now, do you have another one you want to cover now or should I go again? Actually, I do. I'm going to call an audible. I'm just going to throw in my last sort of uh, recommended pick before we start talking about books that we haven't read. Um, okay. Because it's connected in, in this loose way. It also takes place in Japan and it offers a sort of a Japanese perspective on events surrounding World War II, but in a very unusual way. I'll just mention it quickly. This is a not really, I mean, it sort of could be debated whether it belongs on this list, but because, you know, the central action takes place, you know, because of the, the world struggle of World War II, that's why I mention it. A very interesting book by a Japanese writer we've mentioned a few times on this podcast named Shusaku Endo, who's best known for the book Silence, which oh. I think has come up. But he has a book, one of his, he, he write, tends to write moral fiction that, that presents sort of sticky uh, moral questions or situations and, and, throw, and, and, you know, puts his characters into the middle of a moral conundrum and kind of explores how they'll react. And this book is very much in that vein. Um, but, it's, but the action takes place against the backdrop of World War II. And it involves, the book is called The Sea and Poison. So it's not one of his better known novels, but it's a really interesting one because it involves Japanese surgeons. Um, there's a young one who's being mentored by an older, more experienced one. And he basically, to put it short, he gets involved in, in uh, they decide to, they, they capture some American pilots as POWs. And then they decide for some, you know, for scientific reasons um, to vivisect them. So they have these, and apparently this is based on reality, that there were actually World War II, American World War II pilots that were captured by the Japanese and, and horrible medical experience, experiments were done on them. But this novel explores this young doctor who's asked to take part in some of these horrible experiments and uh, you know, having a crisis of conscience about whether he should do, be involved in something so hideous or not. And eventually just essentially just following orders and taking part in what he knows to be, you know, morally wrong. And so it's a very, it's a dark novel that's about, it sort of explores, you know, human conscience and, um, you know, how during a time of war, you know, regular human beings, just like in Germany, can kind of be, you know, uh, goaded into or led into, you know, being on board with atrocities that would never normally, under normal circumstances, they would at least be questioned, you know. So this is just sort of a uh, an interesting, you know, kind of moral novel about, you know, this kind of horrible act that was going on during World War II in Japan and kind of the, you know, the crisis of conscience that it evokes in this one young surgeon. And it's just sort of an interesting take from, you know, all the way across the globe on some of what was going on during World War II. And uh, it just presents another side and another picture from the Japanese point of view. 
of, of some of what was going on at this time in world history. So I just wanted to mention it's kind of an interesting, you know, it's dark, but it's an interesting kind of moral novel from Endo, who's a very powerful uh, Catholic Japanese writer. Okay, folks. So for your homework after this episode, episode 41, I, I would like to defy any listener who's listening right now, go out and find any podcast in the great green world about World War II and see if anybody mentions The Sea and Poison by Shisako Endo. Uh, <laughs> or, or Paper Doll by Shepard. Uh, um, That's right. For that matter. So that this is what we wanted to do, folks. Give you some interesting uh, selections to consider. Great pick, John. Like uh, Shisako Endo is a serious writer, as we know, like the guy that wrote Silence. And I, did, I know about, by the way, The Sea and Poison to me is a textbook example of something that sounds like lost in translation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, um, I mean, that's an interesting phrase, but it just sounds like the, the, the shift from Japanese to English didn't happen very easily. But anyway. Yeah. 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 You're probably right. Yeah. Um, we have at least one friend who could illuminate us on that. <laughs> um, but and a loyal listener, a uh, shout out to him and to his wife. But anyway, um, what a great pick. Like I, I knew about that book. I had no idea what it was about. And, uh, you know, I remember vaguely you reading it years ago, but uh, it, anyway, there's a really fascinating book to bring up. And, and it was cool that you brought in two books from the, the Japanese side of uh, World War II. I almost brought up the book to the white sea again, which we yeah. mentioned in one of our other episodes by James Dickey about the American soldier that was shot down over Japan. And he makes this long trek over the snow and ice of the island of Japan, but um, we had spoken about it already. But that's another really interesting book that comes out of the World War II, um, you know, uh, I don't know, tableau. I'm not sure what the word I want is there. Yeah, and that was that one was uh, featured in one of our early episodes about isolation. <laughs> yeah, good one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, episode 11, maybe? or 10 or 11, something like that. 10 or 11, yeah. Anyway, um, so John, I my last pick, my last last main pick is another couplet, and just a rhetorical question that I really wanted to throw out there sometime during this episode is, did, you know, and I'm not looking for an answer. We know the answer, but did did the Second World War affect only men? And the answer is no. So I wanted to go through my list, and and I and I'd like to mention two books written by women. Now. Um, take that that are at least related to the Second World War. Um, one of them is not, you know, really a a war book, but I brought it up. I want to bring it up for a couple of specific reasons. The other one is a war book, and I would argue it's almost canonical reading for any angle on the Second World War. So let me talk about them quickly. The first is a novel called Manhattan Beach, and it's written by one of my favorite writers of any strife across any genre. Um, and her name is Jennifer Egan. She's a New York-based writer who I have to warn listeners. She has another book coming out next year that I'm just going to go bananas over. So I'll just warn, warn listeners ahead of time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm even trying to get a, an advanced copy of it to see if I can do a review, but uh, I've been unsuccessful so far. But Jennifer Egan has written a lot of novels. She's come up before. Her most recent novel prior to the new one that's coming out next year is called Manhattan Beach. And the reason why I wanted to bring it up, it's a great novel. She's an amazing writer. 
um, has tremendous compassion and a lot of wisdom. And there's a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of uh, vivacious life and energy surging through her books, no matter what her topic is. And she always mixes it up quite a bit. Um, for Manhattan Beach, she got really fascinated in the no, uh, in just the whole topic of kind of the Rosie the Riveter subculture, uh, women in the America affected by the Second World War. And it is a historical novel about a woman named Anna who is growing up or who is in uh, based out of New York City. She's the daughter of kind of a gangster. So there's this and who's and the gangster, her father goes missing part of the way through the novel. So it's part like this. 240s era gangster novel with a missing person mystery but the other element of manhattan beach is that she um has like a lot of restless energy and she's a fascinating character and she sort of stumbles into involvement with the war effort in new york and she becomes an underwater diver who works on uh, repairing damaged vessels from the navy and she um is like one of the first if not the first female, you know, a female individual who does this job. So that's a whole subcurrent of the novel that's really fascinating. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because it's just really interesting to read about a character uh, in, a, in a World War II setting, a woman, part of the war effort while the men are gone fighting and her perspective on the events of the war and her desire to become involved in the war effort. And it turns in, and furthermore, there's a subplot involving a uh a, a a really uh exciting uh sea story during the second world war that's a part of the book also so the book has like a lot of different sort of plot lines but it's set right in the middle of world war ii and it particularly is astute with the way it affected women their ways of thinking and their and their lives so i would highly recommend manhattan beach to anybody listening. And then the next book I want to mention is a real barn burner um, with a fascinating backstory. Don't have time to cover it all. The book is called Sweet Frances. Frances. It was written by uh, a French woman named Irene Nemirovsky. Um, and basically it is a couplet. So it was published um, in the early 2000s. It is a novel that was written by this woman, Irene Nemirovsky, fiction about the Nazi invasion of France and the, um, I'm sorry, the Nazi invasion, gosh, I'm getting confused, no, of Paris, France, and the Jewish people living in Paris when the Nazis kind of rolled in in their tanks and their escape to the French countryside and survival in the French countryside on the run from the Nazis which is exactly what was happening to Irene Nemirovsky at the time she was writing fiction about what was happening. So what she did was she, she had this notebook that she, you know, one of her few meager possessions, she was evacuated from Paris. She started writing fiction about what was happening. She wrote two small novellas and like microscopic writing in these, in its notebook. Cause she only had one notebook and planned in her notes in the notebook she planned for three others so she was writing a sort of a five-part epic novel um so sweet francaise consists of the first two 
The first one is called Storm in June. I love the title Storm in June. And it relates kind of a, it's a much more sort of white knuckle account of the Nazis rolling into Paris and there's and the Jewish people escaping from Paris. And the second one is called Dolce, which is the word for sugar. And it's set all in a small parish village. I mean, um, French village in the countryside. And it's about the people there who are sort of quietly resisting under a Nazi regime and trying to lead their lives with Nazi rule. And then she planned to write three other small novels, but she and her husband were captured. They were sent to Auschwitz and they were both killed in the concentration camps. Irene Nemirovsky died in the infirmary and her husband was killed in a gas chamber. So the book, just to wrap up the notebook, her daughter inherited the notebook. Her daughter's name was Denise. She could not, she survived the war, was sent to the United States to live with her brother, with foster parents. She could not uh, force herself or get herself to read the notebook and had it in her possession for 60 years. Then she opened the notebook and read it and sent it immediately to a publisher. And what I can say about it is not only is it absolutely incredible that this woman was able to capture in fiction the events that she was living through at the time. Again, I'll bring up again, she didn't have any distance from it. But the books are also incredibly well-written. Um, they have rich characters and they work beautifully as like short novels and they're gripping and they're moving. So I would say to any listener of this, uh, Sweet Francaise is one of the, to me, one of the canonical World War II works of fiction. Um, and, you know, I, I'll leave it there. I would highly, highly recommend it. Well, at this point, you know, we're over an hour into the podcast, but I'm, I, I resigned from the podcast <laughs> as well as from the book exchange in general, because I mean, I have, and I'm sorry to do this publicly. I'm sorry to you and our listeners, but you know, all, I have that book on my shelf. I did not read it either in the past or in preparation for this episode. And now that I hear you talking about it, I realize that that's, that that's such a that's such gross incompetence as our old man would say <laughs> that you know I, I i have to resign so no uh i didn't know i knew a lot of that backstory i didn't know all of it it's just absolutely unbelievable that 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 book exists like you were saying and there are some books you know maybe you would include you know uh, solzhenitsyn's gulag archipelago in this category maybe the our, our father Delp's book. There are some books we're just we're just blessed to have. They're just a mm -hmm. gift to humanity, and that sounds like one of them. And uh, I really need to rectify that error. And and it, it's sitting there on my shelf. I really need to read that book, uh, which is kind of a nice segue. If again, you told me I, you know, you're in charge of this episode, and and I don't want to, you know, overstep <laughs> my bounds twice. But that might be kind of a nice segue with your approval um, into, you know, getting into books that we haven't read, but would really, you know, like to read and have to at least mention on the show, because I have a number of those. Are we kind of ready to transition there? Well, thank you for asking my permission. I feel like we, I feel like we've gone back to like being nine years old. It's my turn. Don't forget. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. I, that, yeah, that's a great segue because I have a list of 
four books I wanted to mention. No, three books. So, yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk about some of those? Oh, I will. Now that I mentioned, uh, I say it's a perfect time for the segue. I'm actually going to renege on that. And it's <laughs> 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 turned into a total circus. But um, Yeah, we're veering I, all over the road, folks. Uh, before we do that, I have to, I forgot to mention one of the books that I really wanted to talk about, but I can't go into it like now. But uh, I just have to at least mention it because you were talking about, uh, you know, books about World War II that are written from the point of view uh, that were written by women. And I had a great one on my list that I just forgot to mention. And it comes from the oh, great. Yeah. Go ahead. Once again, one per episode, we mentioned the New York Review of Books Press. Uh, I think I mentioned it on our last episode because I said it was what I was going to read next. And that is The Seventh Cross, which is a novel that was written by a German woman. In 1941, you know, while, you know, during the, uh, you know, the the rise of the Nazi party and the, well, I, I mean, by 1941, the Nazis were quite in control, but uh, her novel, yeah. The Seventh Cross, takes place in the 1930s. And so it's, it's just, I'll just say, it's a fascinating look at the impact of the rise of Nazi Germany and Nazi propaganda, Nazi culture, whatever you want to say on the German people and it's oh, one wow. it has to be one of the great novels of you know kind of uh, oh I don't know just uh, living uh, underneath you know sort of a dictatorship and an atmosphere of, of cruelty and uh, you know the impact on your average citizen you know the fear the paranoia you know, it's a very vivid novel about people who are in constant worry that they're going to be arrested and sent to work camps or they're going to say something they shouldn't say. Uh, and it involves the escape of a group of seven individuals, seven German men from a German camp that they're being imprisoned in for whatever reason. They obviously did or said something that the Nazi state didn't like. So they threw them in a camp and seven men escape. And it kind of it, it's, it has a vast cast of characters and it, it talks about people who are connected to these seven men and how there is, you know, the rumors of their escape and how the escape impacts them and how, you know, one case, it's the man's wife and, and she's got a young uh, son and she's, you know, in constant fear that the Nazis are going to come and ask her questions or what happens if he visits them because he's on the run. And it's this really interesting novel that is kind of a gripping tale of what happens to these seven prisoners uh, as they try to escape, but also the impact of just living during that time leading up to World War II and uh, living under the, the Nazi regime and how just uh, nerve-shredding <laughs> nerve that was for the citizens there and how it was almost impossible to resist what was happening as much as you might want to. So that's a really interesting book written by a woman during the years of World War II that came to us from Germany, kind of provides a unique perspective on, you know, from the point of view of German people living in Germany in the years leading up to World War II. So I had to mention that. Uh, there's a ton of books that we could mention that we haven't read. I guess what I'm going to do is just pick about three of them that are books that I'll just say that I really would like to read. And they're, they're well known, but I, I know for myself that reading these books would really help me to understand the whole subject better, 
and really kind of flesh things out for me. And I think it would just be a fascinating experience. So I'll just mention them quickly. The first one, I think you'll agree that, I mean, it just sounds like one of the books coming from America about World War II that you just have to read if you want to understand what it was like to be an American during this period. Sorry, pause for a drink. And that is, you know, from the great Chicago journalist Studs Terkel. He's known for writing, you know, these vast oral histories. There's one about the Great Depression. Yeah. Um, there's one about just being a worker in America. And he's got a huge book called The Good War, an oral history of World War II. And it's just, you know, interviews Ameri Americans from, from all every spectrum uh, you know, men, women, you know, from states all across the United States and just what, what it was like to live during the years of World War II. That's got to be an awesome book to read to really give you a flavor of what those years were like in the United States. So that's the first one from Studs Terkel. Uh, there's another book very well known. I think it's sort of known as kind of the definitive account of what happened at Pearl Harbor which is something that, you know, we've been hearing about our whole lives. Obviously an incredibly, you know, uh, important moment in U.S. history, but I've never really read an account of it. Uh, so, uh -huh. and there's a, there's a book called At Dawn We Slept, The Untold Story of Pearl Harbor by a historian named Gordon W. Prange, or Prange, P-R-A-N-G-E. And uh, I just think that would be fascinating to read just as an account of, of Pearl Harbor and maybe there are other listeners who, you know, if they'd be interested in, you know, d diving into that, what exactly happened at Pearl Harbor? What was the attack like? I do remember watching the, the Japanese film Tora, 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 by the way, which is a great movie that kind of describes that whole invasion from both American and it was an American and Japanese co-production, I believe, in the 1960s. Yeah, it was also really the name of a hair metal band. <laughs> well, that, that's good to know, too. You know, maybe they go on, maybe they went on tour with loudness back in the day, but uh, <laughs> but loudness. It, it, talk about you know lost in translation. Japanese metal band called Loudness. But anyway, yeah, I'm here. Okay, I lost some of that because there was a call coming in. Do you want to repeat the last minute or so? Well, I hopefully it came through on the recording. If it didn't, um, all right, yeah, whatever. Anyway, uh, at dawn we slept. You know, I've read that that's kind of the definitive account of World War uh, of Pearl Harbor. The attacks on Pearl Harbor would love to read it. And then, um, and there's also a, an account of what happened on D-Day. There are many books about D-Day, but there's one called "The Longest Day" by somebody named Cornelius Ryan that was made into a film with John Wayne. I think that would be an interesting read. But the last one I want to mention would be, and these are just kind of my own picks. But we've talked about William T. Volman on the, on the show before, who writes these huge doorstop books about many subjects. But yeah. he has a collection of stories called Europe Central that are all kind of connected by the fact that they take place in Europe during the time of World War II. And he's not known for his short stories. But this book was – it's a huge book, but it was, it was widely acclaimed. I think it won at least one major award. Uh, and I've always thought it would be an interesting thing to read about World War II and kind of an interesting maybe uh, entry into the work of William T. Volman. I think uh, that, that book sounds really fascinating. So 
that's a lot. There's many more that I would like to mention. There's just not enough time to cram it all in. But those are three books that I really wish I could read on this subject that I think would really, you know, broaden my horizons, at least in terms of understanding what was going on during the World War II years. So I'll let you mention some of your picks. Yeah, all great choices. Yeah, I'd like to read all of them. I haven't read any of those. I think I have Europe Central. Not sure, but I think I do. And I've read oh, William Fullman before um, once or twice. Um, so I have four to mention. And then I think what we're going to do, John, I'm going to mention my two retitles. And then I'm going to um, segue into, let's just mention some of the books that we just didn't have time to cover. But just throw some titles out for people to check out. Maybe quick comment on them. So books you read but just didn't get to talk about today. Would that work? Okay, sure. Yeah, we can do it pretty quickly. Um, we're, we're doing okay. So there's four books that I really want to read also that I have never read. And they're all pretty canonical World War II things, uh, with maybe the last one accepted. Um, the first one is a great World War II novel called The Thin Red Line. It was made into a film by Terrence Malick, who we're both big fans of. It was written by James Jones. It's uh, probably his most famous novel. Um, and it's about American soldiers in the South Pacific. It's just supposed to be one of those canonical World War II novels. Um, yeah. and, and I've never read it. I've never read James Jones. So um, I think he, he also is responsible for the novel um, behind the movie From Here to Eternity. And he's written other um, big novels as well, but I've never read him before. Another canonical World War II novel that I've always wanted to read because of not only is the novel canonical, but the, 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 the writer is canonical also, at least in American culture, very divisive. The writer's name is Norman Mailer, and uh, his debut novel is called The Naked and the Dead. And it's a big doorstop about, again, he was another World War II veteran, kind of a man's man. You know, this was his response to World War II, very different from somebody like uh, Leon Uris or Kurt Vonnegut, as far as I know. But I've never read The Naked and the Dead. Um, I know Mailer is a very controversial writer. So I'd like to read that someday. There's a book that I own in mass market paperback that I'm absolutely determined to read and I will, but I bought it probably 20 years ago. I pulled it out this year or last year with the intent to read it. Didn't get to it. Um, when I do, it's going to take me half a year. It's called the rise and the fall of the third Reich. And it was, it's a nonfiction account of Nazi, the Nazi empire. Oh, boy. Talk about very, a doorstop. Yeah, very famous books written by somebody named William L. Shirer. I am determined to read that. Um, the only other bit of trivia is uh, a few episodes back, we talked about the book called Travels with Charlie by John Steinbeck, um, an account of him kind of crossing America in the 60s. And I remember he was reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Oh, you go wow. back and, and read uh, Travels with Charlie. He, that's the book he's reading. Kind of keep him company on the road. <laughs> um, and he, and John Steinbeck's name may come up briefly again. So I'm, I, I will read that book. I just really want to, but it's, I believe it would be the second or the first place for the longest book I've ever read. It's like something like 1300 pages. <laughs> longest book I've ever read in my life is War and Peace. And it was 1300 and something uh, by Tolstoy. And this would be kind of second place. But I'm determined to read it. And then lastly, when I was in graduate school, John, I, one of my teachers was a novelist and a short story writer by the name of David Gates. <laughs> he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's kind of dropped off the map. But um, 
he I had a literature class with him once and he talked about this book repeatedly. I found a used copy in a bookstore in New York when I was a student and I've never read it, but I've always intended to because he used to tell us all the time to read this book. And it's called Byline Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. So we talked about Ernest Hemingway in uh, I believe it was episode 27, our, our Hemingway episode. But I didn't mention this book at the time. It's a collection of his journalism, basically. And I know a big chunk of that book is his journalistic accounts of the Second World War. You know, and I, I, I thought about trying to fit that in, but I just didn't have the time before this episode. And I know it's not all about the Second World War because he was a journalist very earlier in his life. He, he, you know, wrote about World War One, you know, and, and other things. But a big chunk of it is reportage from World War Two. So I always intended to read that. Um, and th those are mine. So now uh, I'd like to do kind of before we wrap this up, John, I'd like to do kind of a quick lightning round. If you will, are there other books that you read and wanted to bring up that you just didn't have time to mention today that you want to bring up now? I get, I give you the chance. Yeah, there's only a couple, um, but yes, there is. I, I, I mentioned that I didn't even mention her name, which is ridiculous. But The Seventh Cross was written by Anna Segers, S-E-G-H-E-R-S, -E -E however you say that. Um, I mentioned that one. Uh, I didn't even get to uh, I, another book that I read for this episode, which is well-known uh, Band of Brothers, which, you know, there's a very well-known series uh, made on HBO, which is excellent. But the book it's based on is by the American historian Stephen E. Ambrose, who also wrote a huge book about D-Day. But this follows a particular company, uh, E-Company, uh, nicknamed Easy Company, um, they parachuted during the, the Normandy invasions, you know, on D-Day. Uh, they fought across uh, France and Belgium and into Holland, and they eventually made their way into Germany. And they were the very first American company to capture Hitler's headquarters in the, in the Alps, uh, which is known as the Eagle's Nest. So just an, an incredibly riveting account of some very brave and great soldiers uh, and in a, you know, based on extensive interviews with them years after the fact, so that's really a, a tremendous book. Um, I did, you know, you gave these to me, and so I, the one book, you know, we mentioned Winston Churchill a couple times. He has his own, you know, huge doorstop volume memoirs of the Second World War. I read a good chunk of those memoirs. Uh, I don't think I read the whole thing because they're just really long. Um, but you mentioned the fact that he, you know, had won the Nobel Prize for his writing. I'll be honest, I don't remember a whole lot from it. It's really thick and detailed and kind of, I, I found it a little dry. But, you know, it's, that's written from the point of view of the man himself. You can find it if you'd like to hear Winston Churchill's take on the Second World War. He has a very thick volume of memoirs that, you know, should be mentioned. And then the last one I'll just mention real quick. Uh, is not technically a book about World War II, but but we've mentioned I've mentioned David McCullough a number of times in this podcast. He's one of the great biographers that I've ever read, um, and he wrote a massive biography of Truman, which is fascinating. And there's a lot in that book, obviously about and his leadership during World War II, taking over after FDR passed away, 
and the decision to drop the bombs in Japan. But, uh, you know, there's a lot in that book about, you know, uh, him leading the nation during the end of World War II. It's just really a riveting book. That's just an unbelievable and fascinating biography about a really interesting man. So it's worth mentioning in this context. I'll just say really quick, too, there's another canonical World War II novel that has not come up on this podcast. It's one of the best-known novels about World War II that there is. I mean, it's so well-known that the very title has, you know, become a part of our lexicon in the United States, and that would be Catch-22 Oh yeah, by Joseph Heller. And I don't think either one – Just it's just interesting to note that I don't think either one of us has ever read it. And, you know, it's like consistently on the list of top American novels of all time. It's about World War II. It's a classic. And yet neither of us can make any comments about it because we haven't read it. But uh, we probably should. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Yeah, you're darn right. Yeah, that's a great one. And also um, The Gravity's Rainbow, which I mentioned in Episode 9, supposedly great book I'll never read again by Thomas yeah. Pinchon is a World War II novel as well. I couldn't explain any of it, so I'm not even going to try. Um, well, so, I, yeah. I, did, I did laugh during the movie Knives Out when that book came up and, and the, <laughs> the, 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 the detective Benoit Blanc says, well, she, she, the girl says, I've never read. He says, nobody has. And I wanted to raise my hand in the theater. <laughs> Say, I know one person who has. Happens yep, to be the I, co-host of this podcast. <laughs> I slogged through every page of that book, and I did not retain a single page of it. I have no <laughs> idea what it was about. But um, anyway, <laughs> I tried. That's all I can say. I tried. Congratulations, um, because you proved, you proved uh, the writer-director, Ryan Johnson, wrong. <laughs> well, I'll just hit a few titles that I would recommend to our listeners that I didn't get to mention either. First, I want to go back to the one I brought up at the very beginning, uh, Every Man Dies Alone by Hans Vallada, because I said I would. I just really intended to loop that with Sweet Frances as an example of something that was discovered after the person's death. So Hans Falada, like I said, uh, was in a Nazi um, institution for the criminally insane. And then he died later in this book, And Every Man Dies Alone, which was also written from the point of view of somebody living through the experience of being a German, you know, or the characters are German people living under Nazi regime. Um, I was gonna pair it with Sweet Frances just because it was kind of a discovered novel. Um, but just a couple others I would mention. Another great World War II novel, John, that you and I are both very familiar with but has not come up is called The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. Oh, yeah. One of his great novels. Um, it's a love story. has a lot to do with Roman Catholicism, but it's set literally during the, the, Blitz, the Blitz of London. Um, it's notable for like a love scene where two, the two main characters are kind of expressing themselves physically uh, literally while the city's being bombed. So that's um, kind of an interesting segment, but it's a great, it's actually a great, great Catholic and historical novel. Um, well, it's kind of contemporary when he wrote it, but you know, it's a famous novel about a, uh, a doomed love, love affair called the end of the affair. Um, so I would bring that up for speaking of biographies and we brought up our, our old man, Richard Lovell, our dad, um, a number of times in this episode in particular, and he comes up a lot, but when I was a young man, so in, uh, when we talked about freedom in our freedom episode, John, episode 32, 
Um, I talked about a book called Battle Cry of Freedom that my father had given me when I was promoted to first lieutenant. Before that, when I was commissioned as a lieutenant in the United States Infantry, my dad wanted to commemorate that. And he sent me in Georgia when I was going through infantry training for my 22nd birthday in 1992, a huge biography of George C. Marshall. And it was called General of the Army. And it was written by Ed Cray, a man named Ed Cray. And I read, I dutifully read that entire book. And it was all about General Marshall. He fought in World War One. It was about his entire life. But obviously, he was a huge figure in the Second World War. And obviously, in the cleanup from the Second World War, you know, the Marshall Plan, etc. And that was a book I wanted to mention for those who like biography and are interested in military leaders. You know, only a few, a hand, small finger full of people were ever given the rank of general of the army, which was created during the Second World War, five-star general. And George C. Marshall was one of those. So I read that book. Yeah, and it's, it's good to know, it's interesting to know that he later went on to create the Marshall Stack, favored by metal bands <laughs> all over the globe. So, yeah, 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 same you know, guy. <laughs> his, his career went on after in different directions. That you may not have necessarily expected. So, right. that's really, what a, what an American patriot! Yeah, that you know, I mean, he he had two, you know, earth shattering things. He came up with no, he, he's not the Marshall Stack guy, but <laughs> literally earth shattering, <laughs> right? I mean, unless he is, unless those are named after him, I don't know. Um, and then the very last book I want to mention, John, comes from John Steinbeck. I mentioned him earlier. Yeah, just for anybody who's interested in reading something about World War II, if you want to read fiction, but you don't want to spend a lot of time, he he actually has a short novella that he wrote a little bit on the back half of his career after his, at least after The Grapes of Wrath. It was actually before East of Eden, but um, it's not the best known. It's another deep cut. It's a little novella. It's called The Moon is Down, and it's a really interesting book. It's a It's a portrait of one particular village in oh gosh i'm trying to remember what country it was in i think it might be the netherlands yeah it's like the netherlands or belgium or something like that that's again occupied by the it's somewhere in scandinavia i think it's either the netherlands or norway or something okay yeah and it's occupied by the nazis and it's about um the people in that village you know again trying to resist the Nazi regime and the Nazis kind of tightening the screws on their activities. And it has to do with kind of the local government and how they resist. And it's a very interesting book. It's very short and it, you know, sort of ends tragically, but it has this interesting it kind of comes off as sort of like a, a slightly half baked, you know, um, of Steinbeck's books relative to some of his more sweeping tales. But he did a lot of journalism himself covering the Second World War. And this was just a little tale that he spinned out of some of those experiences. And it's a, it's quite interesting. I just reread that recently. You know, you can it's like something like 110 or 120 pages. You can get through it uh, very easily. So I want to drop that on readers also. Um, so, yeah, like so many books, so little time. But I think we've covered like a really kind of. I mean, it didn't even take too, too long doing it. A really kind of fascinating spread of different titles related to the Second World War. Do you, John, do you have anything else you want to say before we take a break? 
No, I mean, there's always more titles, but I think, like, I agree with what you just said. I think uh, this is as good a place as any to tie it off. Okay. Well, we'll take a quick break, listen to more music. Um, thank you to Young Wolf and Void Spanda for providing music for us. Uh, those are our sons. Um, yeah. <laughs> great job, guys. And so we'll do that, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about what we're reading next. I know I have a killer one, and uh, then I'm going to ask John to tease up episode 42. So let's do it. All right, back again, John. I am not going to let you go first because I'm too excited about what I'm going to read next. Well, that's um, fine. That's fine because I actually don't have. I haven't decided yet. So you can just cover what you're going to read next, and then uh, I'll, I can tease up the next episode. Sounds good. So you may know where this is going. I cannot wait. This, in some ways, is going to be the highlight of my year. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I do know where this is going. <laughs> We we give it, you know, the 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 the, the process and the uh, sacred ritual that gives this podcast its title, the book exchange with an X between John and I, where we give each other books for our birthday and for Christmas, has once again, you know, you know, <laughs> lowered its sickle and harvested the earth and given me like a gem from the field. I don't even know where I'm going with that metaphor, but like. I have a gem from this last go-around for my 51st birthday last month, almost a month ago. John gave me a book that I've been looking for for many, many years, and I cannot wait to read it. It's an autobiography. It is called White Line Fever, and it's written by Lemmy Kilminster. If I have that right, Kilminster, Kilminster. Um, if Close you enough. don't know who – what? Close enough. Yeah. If you don't know who Lemmy Kilminster is, then you suck. I hate to say it to all our <laughs> listeners around the world. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Lemmy Kilminster is the lead singer, and I'm dead serious. I've been looking for this book for years, and I cannot wait to read this. Um, it's, it's the autobiography of the lead singer from Motorhead, who, before you laugh, I, I absolutely love the band Motorhead. You know, those who know, know. Um, he's actually deceased now. He died of cancer. At, at 70 years old, 70 or 71 years old a few years back. They were one of the greatest metal, hard rock metal bands, really blues-based, but hard rock bands in the entire history of rock and roll from Great Britain. They Preach, um, Preach it, brother. <laughs> I absolutely love Motorhead. You know, I mean, you either get it or you don't. But let, it, let me kill Minster. I could go on and on about this, but he had, he was from working-class England, like impoverished England, lived through uh, World War II, I, I, like the end, of, the tail end of World War II as a child, uh, experienced, you know, bombing from Nazis, um, which comes up again in some of his music, um, and had this real working class background, uh, ended up in a band called Hawkwind, and then he founded the band Motorhead that just played kind of speed metal and like, you know, grungy metal. He was like this grungy guy from, you know, rural Britain who founded this legendary metal band and he lived 
a hard and fast living life his entire life without apology. And I just, I'm a big fan of his music and I think he actually had a lot of integrity with the way he carried out his career. You know, he certainly wasn't somebody to guide your moral, you know, vessel by necessarily, but he had great integrity for what he did and he did it better than anybody (laughs) in the history of rock. He was just this grungy, jamming, hard rocking, hard drinking, very hard drinking and a hard living man. And um, I won't go on about this, but I had a, my mentor at graduate school is a novelist named Stephen Wright, brought him up a few times. He once told me in a bar in New York at great length that he was sent to do an article on Lemmy Kilmunster for, by Esquire magazine. And he went out and he hung out with Lemmy for like a day and a half. And he told me the entire story of this that I've never forgotten about hanging out with Lemmy in Los Angeles. Um, and he wrote this whole detailed nonfiction article and then they refused to publish it. So it never saw the light of day. Um, and, but I remember him telling me details from that story that, that were absolutely mind blowing <laughs> just about his drinking and his apartment in LA, which was stuffed to the gills with like Nazi memorabilia, just crazy stories, you know, but anyway, I can't wait to read this book. It was written with a ghostwriter, uh, a woman. I, I'm sorry that I didn't write down her name, but it's called White Line Fever. And I can't wait to read it. And I, I'm, I'm like dying to read this book. So that's what's up next for me. Only on this podcast, folks, is a long and serious episode about World War II and the impact of war and human brutality. But then we'll just segue right into Motorhead. Um, and <laughs> Makes like sense, man. With all seriousness, I mean, I look, I gave that book. I didn't even know you had been looking for it for that long. But, I, I mean, I, I can't wait until you read it and, you know, <laughs> tell me about it. So that's going to be awesome. I um, cannot wait to read this book. I, I don't know how else to say it. No, that's going to be great. I can't wait to hear some of the stories. But uh, so to wrap things up, um, I, I have not decided what I'm going to read yet. I just – haven't thought of it yet, so we're just going to bypass that part. And I assume it's okay for me just to, to tie things up and talk about episode 42. Right on. So this is this this episode is going to be – it's essentially going to be our end-of-the-year episode. It's just the way the timing is going to happen. And so we thought the topic itself should sort of coincide with that. We're going to do something we haven't yet done on the show, which is – but uh, people who know us know that um, – both Jude and I, we always write a list of our top 10 books of the year. You know, just the best experiences we had reading the 10 best books that really left an impact on us. We've been doing this for years. Each of us do it. Uh, Jude has a website because of his um, uh, writing, www.judejosephlovell.com. And uh, I think that I think his list is usually up there, but I, I don't have my own personal website. But we always uh, create a top 10 list every year. And um, there was a friend of ours who listens to the show who said, you know, you guys have this book exchange going. You exchange books. You give each other gifts and stuff. Why You should share with your listeners what you, what you give each other. Well, this isn't quite that, but it was inspired by that idea. We thought well, we, what we would do by the way of a year-end episode is uh, go through our personal top 10 lists some of the titles may have come come up on the show previously during the year. Many of them have not. And just kind of review them 
and talk about them and, and uh, talk about the titles and why they had the impact on us that they had and make some recommendations that way. So uh, episode 42 is going to be kind of a year end capper show. Like a lot of other podcasts do with, you know, movie podcasts, for example, these are our top 10 films of the year. This is going to be the top 10 books uh, that each of us read during the year that was 2021. And uh, we'll share those lists and talk about them. So that's what we're going to do for episode 42. Yeah, that's going to be great. I can't wait for it. I, I've got my list, like you were saying, and uh, John always kind of comes back. I tend to do mine first, but John always comes back with a, like, if my list is like a right hook, his his list is like a left uppercut, and we <laughs> both end up flat on our backs on the mat, impressed by what the other guy read. How about that for a metaphor? Uh, yeah, that, so. <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be fun. Uh, a great suggestion from our listener. Um, at least, uh, you know, as the impetus for that idea, but I think we're, we're going to nerd out anything we've talked about already during the year, we'll kind of gloss over, but there are definitely going to be books that have not quite come up. So we're looking forward to that. And, uh, Hey John, you know, we got world war two in under a couple hours, so that's not too bad. Yeah, it's been fun just kicking these books around. And, uh, as always, we thank everybody for listening. Yep. Thank you all. We appreciate you listening from wherever you are. Take care. And happy holidays to everybody. Bye-bye.